Section 3 of A Tour to the Hebrides with Samuel Johnson by James Boswell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anthony Ogus. Wednesday, 18 August. On this day we set out from Edinburgh. We should gladly have had Mr. Scott to go with us, but he was obliged to return to England. I have given a sketch of Dr. Johnson. My readers may wish to know a little of his fellow-traveller. Think, then, of a gentleman of ancient blood, the pride of which was his predominant passion. He was then in his thirty-third year, and had been about four years happily married. His inclination was to be a soldier, but his father, a respectable judge, had pressed him into the profession of the law. He had travelled a good deal, and seen many varieties of human life. He had thought more than anybody supposed, and had a pretty good stock of general learning and knowledge. He had all Dr. Johnson's principles, with some degree of relaxation. He had rather too little than too much prudence, and his imagination being lively, he often said things of which the effect was very different from the intention. He resembled sometimes the best good man with the worst matured muse. He cannot deny himself the vanity of finishing with the encomium of Dr. Johnson, whose friendly partiality to the companion of his tour represents him as one whose acuteness would help my inquiry, and whose gaiety of conversation and civility of manners are sufficient to counteract the inconveniences of travel in countries less hospitable than we have passed. Dr. Johnson thought it unnecessary to put himself to the additional expense of bringing with him Francis Barber, his faithful black servant, so we were attended only by my man Joseph Ritter, a bohemian, a fine stately fellow, above six feet high, who had been over a great part of Europe and spoke many languages. He was the best servant I ever saw. Let not my readers disdain his introduction, for Dr. Johnson gave him this character— "'Sir, he is a civil man and a wise man.' From an erroneous apprehension of violence, Dr. Johnson had provided a pair of pistols, some gunpowder, and a quantity of bullets, but upon being assured we should run no risk of meeting any robbers, he left his arms and ammunition in an open drawer, of which he gave my wife the charge. He also left in that drawer one volume of a pretty full and curious diary of his life, of which I have a few fragments, but the book has been destroyed. I wish female curiosity had been strong enough to have had it all transcribed, which might easily have been done, and I should think the theft, being pro bono publico, might have been forgiven. But I may be wrong. My wife told me she never once looked into it. She did not seem quite easy when we left her, but away we went. Mr. Nairn, advocate, was to go with us as far as St. Andrews. It gives me pleasure that by mentioning his name I connect his title to the just and handsome compliment paid him by Dr. Johnson in his book, a gentleman who could stay with us only long enough to make us know how much we lost by his leaving us. When we came to Leith, I talked with perhaps too boasting an air how pretty the Frith of Forth looked, as indeed, after the prospect from Constantinople, of which I have been told, and that from Naples, which I have seen, 
I believe the view of that frith in its environs from the castle hill of Edinburgh is the finest in Europe. Aye, said Dr. Johnson, that is the state of the world. Water is the same everywhere. Unares injusti chirula forma maris. I told him the port here was the mouth of the river or water of Leith. Not Leith, said Mr. Nairn. Why, sir, said Dr. Johnson, when a Scotchman sets out from this port for England, he forgets his native country. Nairn, I hope, sir, you will forget England here. Johnson, then twill be still more Leith. He observed of the pier, or quay, you have no occasion for so large a one. Your trade does not require it, but you are like a shopkeeper who takes a shop, not only for what he has to put into it, but that it may be believed he has a great deal to put into it. It is very true that there is now comparatively little trade upon the eastern coast of Scotland. The riches of Glasgow show how much there is in the west, and perhaps we shall find trade travel westward on a great scale as well as a small. We talked of a man's drowning himself. Johnson. I should never think it time to make away with myself. I put the case of Eustace Budgel, who was accused of forging a will and sunk himself in the Thames before the trial of its authenticity came on. Suppose, sir, said I, that a man is absolutely sure that if he lives a few days longer he shall be detected in a fraud, the consequence of which will be utter disgrace and expulsion from society. Johnson, then, sir, let him go abroad to a distant country. Let him go to some place where he is not known. Don't let him go to the devil where he is known. He then said, I see a number of people barefooted here. I suppose you all went so before the Union? Boswell, your ancestors went so when they had as much land as your family has now. Yet Auchinleck is in the field of stones. There will be bad going barefooted there. The lairds, however, did it. I bought some speldings, fish, generally whitings, salted and dried in a particular manner, being dipped in the sea and dried in the sun, and eaten by the Scots by way of a relish. He had never seen them, though they are sold in London. I insisted on scotifying his palate, but he was very reluctant. With difficulty I prevailed with him to let a bit of one of them lie in his mouth. He did not like it. In crossing the frith, Dr. Johnson determined that we should land upon Inchkeith. On approaching it, we first observed a high rocky shore. We coasted about and put into a little bay on the northwest. We clambered up a very steep ascent on which was very good grass, but rather a profusion of thistles. There were sixteen head of black cattle grazing upon the island. Lord Hales observed to me that Brontom calls it l'île des chevaux, and that it was probably a safer stable than many others in his time. The fort, with an inscription on it, Maria Ray, 1564, is strongly built. Dr. Johnson examined it with much attention. He stalked like a giant among the luxuriant thistles and nettles. There are three wells in the island, but we could not find one in the fort. There must probably have been one, though now filled up, as a garrison could not subsist without it. But I have dwelt too long on this little spot. Dr. Johnson afterwards bade me try to write a description of our discovering Inchkeith, 
in the usual style of travellers, describing fully every particular, stating the grounds on which we concluded that it must have once been inhabited, and introducing many sage reflections. And we should see how a thing might be covered in words, so as to induce people to come and survey it. All that was told might be true, and yet in reality there might be nothing to see. He said, I'd have this island, I'd build a house, make a good landing place, have a garden and vines and all sorts of trees. A rich man of a hospitable turn here would have many visitors from Edinburgh. When we had got into our boat again, he called to me, Come now, pay a classical compliment to the island on quitting it. I happened luckily, in allusion to the beautiful Queen Mary, whose name is upon the fort, to think of what Virgil makes Aeneas say on having left the country of his charming Dido, Invitus Regina tuo de litore sessi. Very well hit off, said he. We dined at Kinghorn, and then got into a post-chaise. Mr. Nairn and his servant and Joseph rode by us. We stopped at Cooper and drank tea. We talked of Parliament, and I said I supposed very few of the members knew much of what was going on, as indeed very few gentlemen know much of their own private affairs. Johnson, why, sir, if a man is not of a sluggish mind, he may be his own steward. If he will look into his affairs, he will soon learn. So it is as to public affairs. There must always be a certain number of men of business in Parliament. Boswell. But consider, sir, what is the House of Commons? Is not a great part of it chosen by peers? Do you think, sir, they ought to have such an influence? Johnson. Yes, sir. Influence must ever be in proportion to property, and it is right it should. Boswell. But is there not reason to fear that the common people may be oppressed? Johnson. No, sir. Our great fear is from want of power in government. Such a storm of vulgar force has broke in. Boswell. It has only roared. Johnson. Sir, it has roared till the judges in Westminster Hall have been afraid to pronounce sentence in opposition to the popular cry. You are frightened by what is no longer dangerous, like Presbyterians by Popery. He then repeated a passage, I think in Butler's Remains, which ends, and would cry, fire, fire, in Noah's flood. We had a dreary drive in a dusky night to St Andrews, where we arrived late. We found a good supper at Glasses Inn, and Dr Johnson revived agreeably. He said the collection called The Muses Welcome to King James, first of England and sixth of Scotland, on his return to his native kingdom, showed that there was then abundance of learning in Scotland, and that the conceits in that collection, with which people find fault, were mere mode. He added, we could not now entertain a sovereign so. That Buchanan had spread the spirit of learning amongst us, but we had lost it during the civil wars. He did not allow the Latin poetry of Pitcairn so much merit as has been usually attributed to it, though he owned that one of his pieces, which he mentioned but which I am sorry is not specified in my notes, was very well. It is not improbable that it was the poem which Prior has so elegantly translated. After supper we made a procession to St. Leonard's College, the landlord walking before us with a candle and the waiter with a lantern. That college had some time before been dissolved, 
and Dr. Watson, a professor here, the historian of Philip II, had purchased the ground and what buildings remained. When we entered his court, it seemed quite academical, and we found in his house very comfortable and genteel accommodation. Thursday, 19 August. We rose much refreshed. I had with me a map of Scotland, a Bible which was given to me by Lord Mount Stuart when we were together in Italy, and Ogden's sermons on prayer. Mr. Nairn introduced us to Dr. Watson, whom we found a well-informed man of very amiable manners. Dr. Johnson, after they were acquainted, said, I take great delight in him. His daughter, a very pleasing young lady, made breakfast. Dr. Watson observed that Glasgow University had fewer home students since trade increased, as learning was rather incompatible with it. Johnson. Why, sir, as trade is now carried on by subordinate hands, men in trade have as much leisure as others, and now learning itself is a trade. A man goes to a bookseller and gets what he can. We have done with patronage. In the infancy of learning we find some great man praised for it. This diffused it among others. When it becomes general, an author leaves the great and applies to the multitude. Boswell. It is a shame that authors are not now better patronised. Johnson. No, sir. If learning cannot support a man, if he must sit with his hands across till somebody feeds him, it is as to him a bad thing, and it is better as it is. With patronage, what flattery, what falsehood. While a man is in equilibrio, he throws truth among the multitude, and lets them take it as they please. In patronage, he must say what pleases his patron, and it is an equal chance whether that be truth or falsehood. Watson. But is not the case now that instead of flattering one person, we flatter the age? Johnson. No, sir. The world always lets a man tell what he thinks his own way. I wonder, however, that so many people have written who might have let it alone. That people should endeavour to excel in conversation, I do not wonder, because in conversation praise is instantly reverberated. We talked of change of manners. Dr. Johnson observed that our drinking less than our ancestors was owing to the change from ale to wine. I remember, said he, when all the decent people in Litchfield got drunk every night and were not the worst thought of. Ale was cheap, so you pressed strongly. When a man must bring a bottle of wine, he is not in such haste. Smoking has gone out. To be sure, it is a shocking thing, blowing smoke out of our mouths into other people's mouths, eyes and noses, and having the same thing done to us. Yet I cannot account why a thing which requires so little exertion and yet preserve the mind from total vacuity, should have gone out. Every man has something by which he calms himself, beating with his feet or so. I remember when people in England change a shirt only once a week. A panda, when he gets a shirt, greases it to make it last. Formerly, good tradesmen had no fire but in the kitchen, never in the parlour except on Sunday. My father, who was a magistrate of Litchfield, lived thus. They never began to have a fire in the parlour, but on leaving off business, or some great revolution of their life. Dr. Watson said the hall was as a kitchen in old squires' houses. Johnson, 
"'No, sir. The hall was for great occasions, and never was used for domestic refection.' We talked of the Union, and what money had it brought into Scotland. Dr. Watson observed that a little money formerly went as far as a good deal now. "'Johnson. In speculation, it seems that a smaller quantity of money, equal in value to a larger quantity, if equally divided, should produce the same effect. But it is not so in reality. Many more conveniences and elegances are enjoyed where money is plentiful than where it is scarce. Perhaps a great familiarity with it, which arises from plenty, makes us more easily part with it. After what Dr. Johnson had said of St. Andrews, which he had long wished to see as our oldest university and the seat of our primate in the days of episcopacy, I can say little. Since the publication of Dr. Johnson's book, I find that he has been censured for not seeing here the ancient chapel of St. Rule, a curious piece of sacred architecture. But this was neither his fault nor mine. We were both of us abundantly desirous of surveying such sort of antiquities, but neither of us knew of this. I am afraid the censure must fall on those who did not tell us of it. In every place where there is anything worthy of observation, there should be a short printed directory for strangers, such as we find in all the towns of Italy and in some of the towns in England. I was told that there is a manuscript account of St Andrews by Martin, secretary to Archbishop Sharp, and that one Douglas has published a small account of it. I inquired at a bookseller's, but could not get it. Dr Johnson's veneration for the hierarchy is well known. There is no wonder, then, that he was affected with a strong indignation while he beheld the ruins of religious magnificence. I happened to ask where John Knox was buried. Dr. Johnson burst out, I hope in the highway. I have been looking at his reformations. It was a very fine day. Dr. Johnson seemed quite wrapped up in the contemplation of the scenes which were now presented to him. He kept his hat off while he was upon any part of the ground where the cathedral had stood. He said well that Knox had set on a mob without knowing where it would end and that differing from a man in doctrine was no reason why you should pull his house about his ears. As we walked in the cloisters, there was a solemn echo while he talked loudly of a proper retirement from the world. Mr. Nairn said he had an inclination to retire. I called Dr. Johnson's attention to this, that I might hear his opinion if it was right. Johnson, yes, when he has done his duty to society, in general, as every man is obliged not only to love God, but his neighbour as himself, he must bear his part in active life. Yet there are exceptions. Those who are exceedingly scrupulous, which I do not approve, for I am no friend to scruples, and find their scrupulosity invincible, so that they are quite in the dark, and know not what they shall do, or those who cannot resist temptations, and find they make themselves worse by being in the world, without making it better, may retire. I never read of a hermit, but in imagination I kiss his feet, never of a monastery, but I could fall on my knees and kiss the pavement. But I think putting young people there who know nothing of life, nothing of retirement, is dangerous and wicked. It is a saying as old as Hesiod, let youth in deeds in council man engage, 
prayer is the proper duty of old age. That is a very noble line, not that young men should not pray, or old men not give counsel, but that every season of life has its proper duties. I have thought of retiring, and have talked of it to a friend, but I find my vocation is rather to active life. I said some young monks might be allowed to show that it is not age alone that can retire to pious solitude, but he thought this would only show that they could not resist temptation. He wanted to mount the steeples, but it could not be done. There are no good inscriptions here. Bad Roman characters he naturally mistook for half-Gothic, half-Roman. One of the steeples which he was told was in danger he wished not to be taken down. For, said he, it may fall on some of the posterity of John Knox, and no great matter. Dinner was mentioned. Johnson, aye, aye, amidst all these sorrowful scenes, I have no objection to dinner. We went and looked at the castle where Cardinal Beaton was murdered, and then visited Principal Morrison at his college, where is a good library room. But the principal was abundantly vain of it, for he seriously said to Dr. Johnson, You have not such a one in England. The professors entertained us with a very good dinner. Present, Morrison, Shaw, Cook, Hill, Haddo, Watson, Flint, Brown. I observed that I wondered to see him eat so well after viewing so many sorrowful scenes of ruined religious magnificence. Why, said he, I am not sorry after seeing these gentlemen, for they are not sorry. Morrison said all sorrow was bad, as it was murmuring against the dispensations of providence. Johnson. Sir, sorrow is inherent in humanity, as you cannot judge two and two to be either five or three, but certainly four. So, when comparing a worse present state with a better which is past, you cannot but feel sorrow. It is not cured by reason, but by the incursion of present objects, which wear out the past. You need not murmur, though you are sorry. Morrison. But St. Paul says, I have learnt, in whatever state I am, therewith to be content. Johnson. Sir, that relates to riches and poverty. For we see St. Paul, when he had a thorn in the flesh, prayed earnestly to have it removed, and then he could not be content. Morrison, thus refuted, tried to be smart, and drank to Dr. Johnson. Long may you lecture. Dr. Johnson, afterwards, speaking of his not drinking wine, said, the doctor spoke of lecturing, looking to him. I give all these lectures on water. He defended requiring subscription in those admitted to universities thus, as all who come into the country must obey the king, so all who come into an university must be of the church. And here I must do Dr. Johnson the justice to contradict a very absurd and ill-natured story as to what passed at St. Andrew's. It has been circulated that after grace was said in English in the usual manner, he, with the greatest marks of contempt, as if he had held it to be no grace in a university, would not sit down till he had said grace aloud in Latin. This would have been an insult indeed to the gentlemen who were entertaining us. But the truth was precisely thus. In the course of conversation at dinner, Dr. Johnson, in very good humour, said, I should have expected to have heard a Latin grace among so many learned men. We had always a Latin grace at Oxford. I believe I can repeat it, which he did, 
as giving the learned men in one place a specimen of what was done by the learned men in another place. We went and saw the church in which is Archbishop Sharp's monument. I was struck with the same kind of feelings with which the churches of Italy impressed me. I was much pleased to see Dr. Johnson actually in St. Andrews, of which we had talked so long. Professor Haddow was with us this afternoon, along with Dr. Watson. We looked at St. Salvador's College. The rooms for students seemed very commodious, and Dr. Johnson said the chapel was the neatest place of worship he had seen. The key of the library could not be found, for it seems Professor Hill, who was out of town, had taken it with him. Dr. Johnson told a joke he had heard of a monastery abroad where the key of the library could never be found. It was somewhat dispiriting to see this ancient archiepiscopal city now sadly deserted. We saw in one of its streets a remarkable proof of liberal toleration, a non-juring clergyman strutting about in his canonicals with a jolly countenance and a round belly like a well-fed monk. We observed two occupations united in the same person, who had hung out two signposts. Upon one was James Hood White Ironsmith, i.e. tin-plate worker. Upon another, the art of fencing taught by James Hood. Upon this last were painted some trees and two men fencing, one of whom had hit the other in the eye, to show his great dexterity, so that the art was well taught. Johnson. Were I studying here? I should go and take a lesson. I remember Hope in his book on this art says, The Scotch are very good fencers. We returned to the inn, where we had been entertained at dinner, and drank tea in company with some of the professors, of whose civilities I beg leave to add my humble and very grateful acknowledgement to the honourable testimony of Dr. Johnson in his journey. We talked of composition, which was a favourite topic of Dr. Watson's, who first distinguished himself by lectures on rhetoric. Johnson, I advise Chambers, and would advise every young man beginning to compose, to do it as fast as he can, to get a habit of having his mind to start promptly. It is so much more difficult to improve in speed than in accuracy. Watson, I own I am for much attention to accuracy in composing, lest one should get bad habits of doing it in a slovenly manner. Johnson. Why, sir, you're confounding doing inaccurately with the necessity of doing inaccurately. A man knows when his composition is inaccurate, and when he thinks fit he'll correct it. But if a man is accustomed to compose slowly and with difficulty upon all occasions, there is danger that he may not compose at all, as we do not like to do that which is not done easily and at any rate more time is consumed in a small matter than ought to be. Watson. Dr. Hugh Blair has taken a week to compose a sermon. Johnson. Then, sir, that is for want of the habit of composing quickly, which I am insisting one should acquire. Watson. Blair was not composing all the week, but only such hours as he found himself disposed for composition. Johnson. Nay, sir, unless you tell me the time he took, you tell me nothing. If I say I took a week to walk a mile, and have had the gout five days, and been ill otherwise another day, I have taken but one day. I myself have composed about forty sermons. I have begun a sermon after dinner, and sent it off by the post that night. I wrote forty-eight of the printed octavo pages of the life of Savage at a sitting, but then I sat up all night. 
I've also written six sheets in a day of translation from the French. Boswell. We have all observed how one man dresses himself slowly and another fast. Johnson. Yes, sir. It is wonderful how much time some people will consume in dressing, taking up a thing and looking at it, and laying it down, and taking it up again. Everyone should get the habit of doing it quickly. I would say to a young divine, Here is your text. Let me see how soon you can make a sermon. Then I'd say, Let me see how much better you can make it. Thus I should see both his powers and his judgment. We all went to Dr. Watson's to supper. Miss Sharp, great-grandchild of Archbishop Sharp, was there, as was Mr. Craig, the ingenious architect of the new town of Edinburgh, and nephew of Thompson, to whom Dr. Johnson has since done so much justice in his lives of the poets. We talked of memory and its various modes. Johnson. Memory will play strange tricks. One sometimes loses a single word. I once lost Fugus's in the ode Postume Postume. I mentioned to him that a worthy gentleman of my acquaintance actually forgot his own name. Johnson. Sir, that was a morbid oblivion. End of section 3